and welcome to the 96th episode of Something Rhymes with Purple, a podcast about words and language, and I guess about me, Susie Dent, and uh, my partner, Charles Brandreth. Hi, Charles. It's lovely to be with you again, Susie Dent. We've got to do something very special to mark our centenary. It's quite strange because for the past year, we've been doing these podcasts remotely. When we began doing it almost two years ago now, we would meet uh, sometimes at the studios of Something Else, our production company, uh, sometimes at Susie Dent's home. We talked about doing them in interesting places like Dr. Johnson's house in London, but we've ended up doing them, really, you at your your home in Oxford, me in my home in London, and communicating as people are nowadays via Zoom. And it's worked out fine, hasn't it? Do you know, I genuinely, I think I've said this to you before, I actually prefer it because I think there's just very little distraction, curiously. I think having headphones on, it's quite a sort of immersive experience. And it just feels actually more one-to-one than sitting with our lovely producer next to as much as I love them. It just feels like a more intimate, direct experience. So I like it. It feels like an old chat. We hope that people find this moment in the week, the half hour or so that they give us, a kind of oasis. And you told me the other day that for you, making the podcast is a kind of oasis. And I then said to you, what's the origin of the word oasis? What is the origin of oasis? And you also, uh, this this was, uh, we did a little radio piece, didn't we? And I said exactly that, that has been an oasis for me, because during lockdown, there isn't very much else going on apart from sort of family life, etc. But from a kind of brain point of view, this has been my refuge. I can indulge in the love that has kind of sustained me all my life, just, uh, yeah, as well as the love of my kids, obviously, um, which is etymology and word origins. And I love talking to you about it. So yes, you asked me about Oasis as opposed to a mirage. Mirage is something illusory. An Oasis is just something that provides a refuge or a dwelling place. And it goes back to the ancient Greek, but actually, ultimately... Egyptian, and it means just that, a dwelling place. So somewhere that you go and you take comfort, I think, and solace. Good. How have you been coping during this latest lockdown? Um, I have to confess that I have had the occasional fit of marble fubbles. Remember marble fubbles, which was a centuries-old description of just a tinge of low spirits and melancholy. Um, not all the time, but I suppose it wouldn't be human if I didn't feel that sometimes. So it's a kind of low-level sense of anxiety, which kind of builds and then just sort of ebbs away again. But, I, you know, I think we are all feeling that because there is isn't there is not much cheer on the horizon at the moment. Well, I, I've been having my headaches again. Oh. And my son-in-law, the vet who I go to because yeah. the GP, GP is understandably busy, but yeah. since my son-in-law is a vet I, and I and I get the impression on the whole that uh, vets really like their patients possibly more than doctors do. I don't know. Anyway, I consult him. And he said to me, I doubt that it's anything to do with COVID. It's mm. postular. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the way you sit at your desk, yeah. man. Uh, not yeah. that he speaks to me like that. But the truth is, I... I'm writing another book, of course, and I sit when I'm keen and anxious. In fact, I'm doing it now talking to you, uh, leaning into the microphone. I sit at the desk with my neck forward, and that apparently does terrible things to my posture. In fact, sometimes when I get up, I find I'm a little bit bent, Mm. and that's what's probably giving me the headaches. And I thought it was anxiety because I'm not sleeping well, because COVID is getting to me, because I've probably got it. And he said, no, it's you've got some postular problem. If only you would sit up properly. Or he said, stand at your desk. Okay. 
what I'm really trying to do is, well, two things of interest, uh, I think. One is that I'm trying to move every half an hour. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get up and walk around the block, make myself another cup of tea, do whatever, you know, and come back and then vary it. So I'm trying to do half an hour sitting down and then half an hour standing up at the desk. And I've simply got a little stool that I put the computer on. So I just uh, lift it up and I just okay. stand at the table with it two feet higher. So I'm doing that. But also I learned from my daughter, the one who's married to the vet, that we can only concentrate really for 25 minutes. And so I'm trying to do 25 minutes of really concentrated work. Then I'm taking a five-minute break and doing another 25 minutes. And I'm finding that really works. So I'm not Mm. allowing myself. I'm at the desk. I'm trying to write my thousand words a day. I try not to look at the emails until 4 p.m. And then every half an hour, I am basically taking a break. So what is your your writing habit? Because you're writing another book now. How do you work your day? I'm just terribly restless as a person. I'm very bad at sitting down for any length of time. So I'm constantly up and down, I have to say. Uh. I'm struggling a little bit now that we're only allowed a little bit. Well, we're only allowed out once for exercise. So you've got to make it count. So I go for a long walk every day, which I know you love as well. And the rest of the time, yeah, any excuse. I also have a very pestering cat who regularly comes in, looks at me and then trots off to the kitchen because she wants something or other. So she's quite a good reason to get up. But yeah, I'm not very good at the best of times at sitting down for hours on end and concentrating on one thing. And it's very difficult. Looking at emails at, at only at four, I wish I could emulate that because with my phone right next to me, you know, it pings all the time. And that's one. You must turn off the pinger. People regularly say to me, because I do, I write a book a year. They say, how do you do it? And I say, it's all down to Mark Twain. Mark Twain asked how to write a book. He said, what do you need? He said, application. Application, yes, applying the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair. That's the only way to do it. Well, we're going to talk about... What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about words. And we're going to talk specifically about things. You mentioned pinger the other day. I have to turn my pinger off. We have so many words for, say, remote control, whether it's the, you know, hoobmajob or the thingamy or the doofus or whatever you call it. These by contrast, are going to be things that actually do have a name, but you might not know it. So I'm going to give you a quiz, Giles. Please, I like a quiz. Okay, you'll have to reach back, you have to delve back into your memory because we have covered all of these in previous episodes. But what is the interrobang? Do you remember our punctuation episode? Yes, interrobang. That is an exclamation and a question mark combined. Yes. When you want to say, what the hell, which is a question, but yes. also it's an exclamation, you end it with an interrobang. Exactly. It was a form of punctuation introduced maybe in the 1930s, 40s. 1960s. That's, well, it was very popular 19- in the 1960s and they were uh, combined. So it's not just this one after another, but actually it was a kind of combined question mark and exclamation mark. That's very good, because that's both a new punctuation mark and a new word that we didn't know before. Yes. Oh, good. So this is about words one. that have been invented. Lovely. Go on. Well, no, or just forgotten. Um, ah. And actually, you know, when people say to me, oh, there's no word for this. I'm sure the Germans will have one. And sometimes, much as I love German, as you know, I will say, well, actually, we did too. But for some reason, we, we gave up on it. So the day after tomorrow, do you remember? Such a mouthful to say, yes, I'm seeing them the day after tomorrow, or I'll do that the day after tomorrow. Do you remember what that is? Well, I do remember that my son's New Year resolution uh, was uh, to procrastinate more, and then he decided to put it off until February. Um, (laughs) So, the day after tomorrow, 
What is that? It's very simple. It's simple. It was simply the overmorrow. Oh, it's a lovely word. Which is beautiful. That has a kind of 16th century feel to it. Yeah, overmorrow, um, things like yestreen, which was yesterday evening, last night, which I think is also gorgeous. Um, it, overmorrow, I'm just going to tell you when it was first used, looking it up now. Um, yes, 16th century, spot on. And also you mentioned procrastinate. C- procrastinate has crass, meaning tomorrow in Latin. And do you remember the word for oh, putting something off until the day after tomorrow? Oh, over-procrastinate? No, perendinate. Perendinate? Yes. How wonderful. So procrastinate is literally to put it off until the next day, is yes, it? Yes, till tomorrow. Not just yes. to postpone it. It's, oh, because crass means tomorrow. Yes. We live and learn. This is why I adore this podcast. It may be our 96, but I'm still learning things. Um, okay, here's one more for you. Um, yes. Do you remember the name for... A smell of hot earth after a period of rain, or the smell of rain after a period of dry weather. The smell of rain after a period of dry weather. It's a smell that I rather like, but my mm. wife doesn't. It's very earthy. Curiously, because it smells to her of, of leaves that are beginning to rot. Um, what is the word? Petrichor. Oh, that does ring a bell now. Yes. Petricor. Petricor. And Petri as in turning to? It's rocks. It's got a beautiful etymology because it means, uh, what it meant, the ethereal liquid that flows in the veins of the gods. That's ichor. And Petri is stone. So yes, it's due to an element called jasmine, G-E-O-S-M-I-N, which releases these kind of musky, earthy odours when very, very dry and then rained upon. And it's a very, very particular smell. I I love it. Um, One last one for you. What do you call the dot on top of the letter I? The dot on top of the letter I... I know the two dots on top of the letter E are called a diuresis. Does that going to lead me in the right direction? No. It sounds much more English, this one. Oh, a dot on the letter I. This is not a dot above the dot on the letter I. This is the actual dot on the letter I. Yes. Give me a clue. Give me the initial letter. T. Oh. Tit. Almost. T- tittle. 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 It's a and little tittle. And remember the phrase, not a jot or tittle? Yes. A jot was Greek for the letter I, iota, which also gave us iota. So it's all in all of those. It's the tiniest, tiniest part because the letter I was seen as the smallest Greek letter in the alphabet. So you've got iota, you've got jot and you've got tittle, the tiniest, tiniest punctuation mark. So when you say I care not a jot nor a tittle, it means I don't care at all. I don't care the tiniest, tiniest bit. Exactly. So the dot on an eye, when they say cross your T's and dot your I's, dotting the I's is you're putting a tittle on your eye. Yes. And the expression, that's him to a T, we think that the T in question is the beginning of the word tittle. It's the first letter of tittle, meaning... That's him to the tiniest degree. Him down to a T. You've got him down, down to, a, to tittle. a tittle, to the most small detail possible. Yeah. Down to yeah. a T. Well, I've got one for you. See okay. if you can tell me this one. Oclophobia. It's a good one now because it's a bit what some of us are suffering from. Oclophobia. O-C-H-L-O-phobia. Somebody told it to me the other day and they mm. said, try it out on Susie Dent. I said, well, if it's a real word, she'll know it. If it's a made up word, she'll sure blow you not. out of the water. It's interesting because most of the phobias that we come up with are actually recent recent words, but they are given because all phobias are coined in Greek. They are sort of given 
Greek names, but they because are phobia means fear of, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So it's a fear um, of something. So what do you think the oclo is? The only thing I can think of is I think there was a word oclocracy. I might have got this completely wrong, meaning a mob. Yes, this, no, you're spot on. Okay. This is the obsessive fear of crowds. Crowds. Oclophobia. Oh, well, that's perfect for today. Which is today. We're all suffering from oclophobia. It's quite yeah. bizarre. When my wife and I are out on our morning walk, we see somebody a uh, hundred yards away, ahead of us on the street, and we, we move to the other side of the road. I mean, yeah. what is this nonsense? They're, they're yards away. Yeah. Um, it's quite well, strange. Well, actually, I had a lady the other day tick me off because I went out for my walk with a friend and I was observing the two metre distance with my friend and the lady coming towards me didn't feel like I was going to be far enough from her. So she stuck her arms out, as you can see I'm doing now on Zoom, just telling me, don't don't you dare come within that circumference Gosh. of me. Um, I, I, people generally are getting quite grumpy because I was I was not going to get near her. But And I totally understand the fear of somebody coming too close and some people just don't think. But it's quite there's quite a lot of animosity I find out on my walks uh, these days. So I think I would just implore people to be kind. Anyway, oclocracy, I think, is mob rule. So that's why I was thinking of mob. So, okay, that's interesting. Talking of very small things, the, yes. the, the little, the jot and the tittle, minimus. Yes. That's a word that often crops up in Shakespeare, meaning mm. as a kind of insult, you minimus. Is That's the same idea as jot and tittle. It's reducing something to the absolute minimum, isn't it? Yes, um, it absolutely is. And I think also minimus can mean your little toe. Yes, the smallest finger or toe. And in fact, while we're on this subject of things for which you didn't know there was a name, the body has absolutely loads of them. For example, do you know what you call the space between your thumb and your finger, your index finger? The thumb and the, that, that sort of little fleshy bit. Yes. Yes. Um, it's got a lovely, cute name. Tell me, what is it? It's the pearly cue. Oh, I love it. The pearly cue. Very cute, isn't it? Um, Do you know the way to test somebody's age? Is it the pinching your skin on top of pinch, your hand? P- pinching the skin on the back of the hand. If they're young, it jumps It'll back. back. And if they are, this is, if you think you're with somebody who's had a lot of face work done and <laughs> uh, you're just wanting to assess in the half light what's going on here, you just lean forward and as you whisper your sweet nothing, you pinch the back of their hand. And if it springs back instantly, you know, oh gosh, they are as young as they look. But if it takes a while to creep back, you can say to yourself, hmm, they've had some face work done there. So sorry, I interrupted you. If I may you. say so, I think that's very superficial, but I am also at the same time putting on some hand cream, as you can hear now. You can probably hear that. Okay, so that's the pearly cue. What yes. about... I love the pearly cue. The small pink bit at the inner corner of the eye. You know, so in some people it can be quite pronounced, and I find when I'm tired also it becomes more prominent. That may just be my perception, but... Um, small yeah. pink bit, yes. It's a kind of little pink dot. More than a dot. So it's, it's just in the inner corner. You've got that sort of mm. lumpy bit. And it's um, caruncle, C-A-R-U-N-C-L-E. So it's like a carbuncle without the B. And that actually, it comes from the French meaning a little piece of flesh. And is applied, mm. I have to say, to lots of different things, but particularly to the lacrimal I don't know if you would call them the glands, but they're called the lacrimal caruncles. Okay, so that's one one for you. What about the fleshy bit that hangs at the back of the mouth above the opening of the throat? Oh, good grief. Oh, dear, that's rather revolting. It's Um, the uvula. 
Oh, is that what it's called? I thought that was something yes. more intimate. Uh, the uvula. How interesting. Yeah. Is the uvula the thing that, in if you picture a kind of Tom and Jerry cartoon, occasionally the characters open their mouths and they're screaming and you see little bits of yeah. jangling at the you back the of their mouths. And then you, you see the tonsils. Is that the uvula? Oh, that's the tonsils. That's the tonsils, but I think uvula is probably there as well. It actually goes back to the Latin uvula meaning the same thing. So there's nothing massively interesting to say there. But yes, there's a very detailed description of it in the OED. The conical fleshy prolongation hanging from the middle of the pendant margin of the soft palate in man and primates. There you go. Does That's that make sense? Poetic in its own way. You want a loving bits of the body. Yes. What about the smooth part of the forehead between the eyebrows? Oh, the smooth part of the forehead between the eyebrows. Not in, sadly as smooth in my case as it used to be. Can you give me an initial letter to give me a kind of clue? Don't know if you'll know this one, but G. Oh, oh, it's that's not going to be the glabella, is it? It is the glabella. Excellent. Yes. Yes, and if you are glabrous, you've got a smooth, yes. bald head. I think I knew that because as the years have gone by, my hair has receded, or rather my forehead has grown. And, I think you've got a fine, uh, head, fine head of hair. Well, that's because of lockdown. I can't get to the hairdressers. So what there is? No, are you really, I, mean, I remember this from last time. You look, you, are you really suit long hair? It's well, going to be a ponytail I, by the end going. Of this. So glabella is what? Say glabella. Glabella again. is, the, is the, the smooth bit between and directly above the eyebrows. That is the glabella. I'm going to so give you one every, more. Yes, I know. Give me lots more because has every okay. part of the body got a name? It must have. But we just well, don't. I guess so. Yes, there's another one here, which you know, there's that little crescent marking at the bottom of a nail. That's got a lovely word, and it comes from the Latin for a crescent moon because it is shaped that way. If you look at your nails now, and it's a lunule, L-U-N-U-L-E, oh, yes. crescent, little crescent moon. Very good. I say I'll give you one more, but it was only because we uh, we need to have a break. I think, but I have. As many as you want to get Oh, I want lots of them. And I wouldn't want, if you don't mind, an alternative word for the belly button. Okay. Yes. It's not particularly nice, I think. Yeah. Oh, well, never mind. Let's think we can, we can go to dark places here, including the belly button. See you after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Also from something else. In July 2020, Ghislaine Maxwell was charged with recruiting underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein. Well, it turns out this isn't her first scandal. Robert Maxwell's gone missing. Ghislaine's father was a media mogul. We had two really big media moguls. One was Rupert Murdoch, and then there was Robert Maxwell. He died mysteriously in disgrace. The more you know him, the more you dislike him. That led Ghislaine to Epstein. Daddy's little grifter. That's this season on the podcast, Power the Maxwells. Subscribe now. This is Something Rhymes with Purple, where we're talking at the moment about parts of the body that have names that we didn't know. And Susie Dent is going to tell me an alternative name to the part of the body that we do know, which is the belly button. But I've always found that rather a, a funny word, 
Well, it's words. Is there a technical term for the belly button? Yes, it's the um, omphalos. Oh, good grief. I think, which can mean lots of, of different things. But yes, in Greek, it was the navel. But it was also the round stone in the temple of Apollo at Delphi, which was supposed to mark the centre of the earth. That was the omphalos. But it was then transferred over to, to the navel. Very good. You're one of these people who has, has slightly sort of ooh, icky feelings about when you talk about the belly button. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why. I just sound like it's just bizarre, isn't it? Because it's such a lovely marker of birth. But yeah, the whole innie outie business, I think, can we move on? <laughs> we can certainly move on. Give me another part of the body and another unusual name that okay. exists, but I don't know it exists. Well, this one is much more romantic than the, the belly button, I think. It is that little groove at the top of your lip. Oh, in between your lips, that some yes. people have more more indented than others. Yes. Um, at the top of your lip, that little indentation. Is it the philtrum? Very good. It is the philtrum. And the reason I love it is it goes back to the Latin philtrum, meaning a love potion. Um, oh. So it's, it's just linked to, I guess, attraction and romance. It's a love charm. That's how it's supposed to be seen, that little, that little groove, which I think is gorgeous. P.H. I-L-T-R-U-M. As in a yeah. love filter is spelt P-H-I-L-T-R-E, isn't it? Exactly. And it has got it has got a biological function as well, because in most mammals, the philtrum is used to carry moisture from the mouth through capillaries to the nose in order to keep the nose wet. And a wet nose traps smells better than a dry one. And so this enhances the smell and the tracking abilities of a dog or a mammal. It's not really necessary in humans, I suppose. But yeah, so it's like a little channel between the mouth and the nose, the philtrum. Okay, give me another one. Okay, this is, it's a technical word for your big toe. <laughs> so I talked yes. about the minimus, the little toe. It's not particularly nice, this one. It just, there, there is a word for it, if you've ever wondered. And it's the hallux, H-A-L-L-U-X. So does each toe have a name, do you think? I'm not sure. I know that if you, um, I don't, were you ever told or do, have people ever said, oh, yes, if your big toe is bigger than your other toes, that means you are of noble birth or I don't know, there are all sorts of theories attached. Have you heard that one? I didn't know that. Oh, I'm, I, I may. Oh, how exciting. Because I've got you can huge have a look now big toes. If you like. No, please. <laughs> um, and I've got huge big toes. My big toes are vast and my, and my other toes are quite small. That means I'm of grand birth, am I? Well, apparently, um, I think, I think I having one bigger is, is called Morton's toe, although I think that is a kind of medical complaint because I think it involves pain. But yes, I remember hearing all of that. But no, I genuinely don't know if there is a word for every single toe. We've covered the hallux and the minimus, but if there are any you know people listening who, who know this answer, any doctors who would love to know. And essentially, these words come about because people think everything has to be named. And almost mm. everything in the world has been named. But occasionally, new things come along. We have to think of names for them. Like, I remember you introduced me to the name of that piece of cardboard that goes around a cup of coffee yes. when you have a takeaway coffee uh, to yes. ke keep your hand from getting too hot. And that's called a zarf. You introduced me yes. to that word, Z-A-R-F. And I imagine somebody invented that word when they came up with that bit of cardboard that went around the coffee cup. No, actually, no, they didn't. So it sounds oh. like it's straight out of 
a Popeye cartoon, doesn't it? But zarfs are incredibly old and they began, they were usually made of silver or gold and they were very ornately decorated and were absolutely beautiful and have been known in Arabic cultures for a very, very long time. And it comes from Arabic. And when it first came over the word zarf into English, it described cup-shaped holders for hot coffee cups, but usually of metal ornamental designs. Um, as it's 19th century that it came over to English. But yeah, those, those cardboard sleeves have very long and illustrious histories. Are there any other new words or new words that have new uses, as it were, related to food, drink? Well, there is a word. It took the internet by storm a few years ago. And I remember thinking, wow, I never knew that. I really, really wish I had. And I still can't work out whether, in fact, it does describe the thing that was in this social media post. And I, I think it probably does. But the word is phlegm. It sounds too much like phlegm, really, but it's P-H-L-O-E-M. Mm. And if you look up phlegm in the dictionary, it says it's a vascular tissue of plants which conducts sugars and other products of metabolism between parts of the plant, okay? That in the post that took people by storm, it was the stringy bits on a banana. Oh. You know, are really yes. annoying and I always take them off and actually I don't like eating them. I don't know about you, but it kind no. of puts me off. And I'd love... I'd love a botanist to say, yes, they generally are called phlegm. I'm hoping that that one is true. I just think it's beautiful. I've got one more for you, actually, which is the little bubbles on a raspberry. You know, the little little bumps. Oh, yes. And yes. they're called droopelets, D-R-U-P-E-L-E-T-S, little droops. I love that, droopelets. That's gorgeous, little, isn't it? Little bumps on a raspberry are droopelets. Yes. And the stringy bits in a banana are called phlegm. But Possibly. if we've got that wrong, in fact, we would like somebody who is an expert on fruit and veg to get in touch and <laughs> tell us if that really is what they are called. I can't. I love a banana as a rule. I love yeah. banana toast. I used to have banana toast always for breakfast and then I realised ah. I needed protein. I don't think it's not a protein. No, I tell you what you can have. Banana Come toast on. with peanut butter. So put peanut butter Goodness. on first and then banana on top. Absolutely delicious. Wow. I've never done that. What a lovely idea. Oh, I'm mm. going to do that. That's it's given me an delicious. appetite. I've got one more for you. Okay. What do you call the tip of your umbrella, if you ever wanted to call it that, if it came off, for I example, that little metal bit? On the point, yes, on the, the tip point. Of, I'd say I need the tip of my umbrella replaced. The nodule, the thingy at the top. Is there a word for it? It's a ferrule. F -E oh, double but I think I think it means other things. I think I know the word ferrule for other contexts. Give me the yes. full meaning of ferrule. F e double r u l e. You're right. It comes from ferrum, meaning iron, and it's a, a little ring or it's a little cap that strengthens the end of something. So you're right. It's used in lots of different ways. It's, it's used for things that are usually made of metal, and it's to prevent splitting and wearing. And you will find it at the end of an umbrella. But it also, I think, in construction, it's it's a, any anything that strengthens a joint or fastening. Look. Let's go to some correspondence now, Okay. Uh, letters from people. And do, if you've got any queries about new words or particularly uh, if you've come up with a word for something that doesn't yet exist that you feel needs a greater currency, we've been very lucky. We've had more than 4 million downloads of our podcast. We're listened to around the world. This could be the means by which you spread your word globally. So if you've got a word that didn't exist for something that you feel deserves a word, let us know. Purple at somethingelse.com is how you get in touch with us. Something is spelt without a G. Who has been in touch and what have they had to ask? We have a nice 
Well, lovely letter, actually, from Stephen Garner in Bishop's Castle in Shropshire. I, I don't know about you, Giles, but this just always really, really cheers me up when people say things like this. Stephen says, thanks for the lovely blast of escapist wordplay in these torrid times, which is really nice. He says, dear Susie and Giles, during the course of his sleuthing pursuits, Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie's inimitable detective, overheard a potential suspect calling her licentious husband a poodle faker. I was wondering, what does this rather marvellous allegation mean? Um, Have you heard poodle faker? Yes, I have, and I don't really know what it means. I've heard the expression. Yes, a poodle faker originally was a man who cultivated female society, which is obviously how it's been used in Agatha Christie, for the purpose of advancement. So a ladies' man, but usually in order to become richer or get into the right crowd or whatever. It's definitely derogatory. In political context, it also meant a person who obsequiously or unquestioningly followed or obeyed another, a bit like the catch fart, if you remember that. And the reason the poodle is here is because the poor poodle has been much maligned really in the history of the dictionary and it's been used for any dog that kind of simperingly dotes on their master or mistress which I don't think is a particular attribute of poodles I think they're lovely if they don't wear bows I think they're beautiful and it's not their fault if they are but if they are sort of doting on their owner If they're doing that, then they are poodling. And if you're a poodle faker, you are pretending to dote upon somebody when, in fact, you have ulterior motives. Mm. Makes sense? Makes total sense. Somebody has been in touch. Oh, Kim Sullivan from New South Wales. Mm. Kim has written to ask, is there a word that describes the pleasure you have when you watch someone who is at the top of their game? Perhaps an actor or musician who gives a sublime performance which appears effortless. Have you ever seen... Uh, a pair of American dancers called the Nicholas Brothers. No. Go onto YouTube. If you are listening to this, you could almost stop the podcast now, certainly when the podcast is over. Go onto YouTube and type in Nicholas Brothers, and you will see this pair of American dancers, famous really in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, though I think they went on until the 50s, even the early 60s, the most incredible acrobatic tap dancing you will ever see. Really? It's, okay. It's like Fred Astaire on speed. I mean, <laughs> and Fred Astaire is just magic beyond magic. Extraordinary, yeah. Uh, so look at these fellows, the Nicholas uh, brothers, and you will just be amazed. I've been lucky enough to see a number of great artists in their prime. Uh, Frank Sinatra, I know we've talked about. I saw a Barbara Streisand at the Hollywood Bowl back in the mid-1960s. And wow. it was, you know, goosebumps, tingles up the spine time. Extraordinary. Is there a word to describe that kind of ecstasy that you feel, that high when you come away from seeing a great boy. Have you, I mean, can you, is there an experience you've had of, of seeing somebody or hearing somebody play? You're probably more into classical music than I am. I mean, no, have, have I'm really ever... not, actually. I, well, I, I love classical music, but um, no, it just takes me back to the very first time when I was about 14 or 15, I went to my first concert and it was when I was on an exchange visit in Germany to a sort of pen pal. And we went to see Lloyd Cole and the Commotions in Cologne. And um, yeah, it was the first time I'd had that total immersion in loud music and it was exhilarating. I just remember 
goosebumps all the way through. But I honestly don't know, Kim, whether there is a word for this. And I'm going to go and do some homework on it. I mean, more often than not, as I always say, the dictionary tends to linger on the kind of insulting side. So pleasure in someone else's unhappiness, famously, is schadenfreude. But we don't really talk about confelicity, which is pleasure in someone else's happiness. But pleasure in someone else's skill is something different Still, and I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to have to study that one because I don't know Great. it. It's a good one for this episode because there might be a name for it, but I don't know it. And if you've got the name for it, please let us know purple at something else. Well, Touchwood, somebody will come up with it. Oh, speaking of Touchwood, on our episode on potions and lotions, episode 87, we discussed superstitions, uh, phrases like white rabbits and pinch and punch for the first of the month. Well, Lindy, Linda... Linda, as in Linden Tree, not Linda, L-I-N-D-E, uh, she's written to ask where the superstitious phrase touch wood comes from. Uh, and you, whenever you say touch wood, you look around for some wood to touch. And if you can't find it, you touch your head, don't you, as a little joke, yeah. suggesting your head's made of wood. The origin of that, I think, is going to have something to do with the crucifix and uh, the cross, Christ. I don't know. That's um, my guess. Honest answer, I can't tell you because there are oh. lots and lots of different theories to this one. But I think my favourite goes back to a kind of pagan ritual, which is knocking on the on the trunk of a tree. And that's simply reflecting the fact uh, or the pagan belief that benevolent spirits resided in the trunk of a tree. And as a tree lover, I just absolutely love that. So the idea, I think, was that you would invoke the good spirits in order to bring yourself luck by tapping that's on the tree. Wonderful. That's one so, theory. That's Stop, one theory. It? So, so there are there's a, that's the pagan version, as it were. You're touching yeah. a tree and that I've not heard a crucifix one, I have to well, say. Well, that's just me guessing. You know, touch yeah. wood, the idea, yeah. because, I mean... For, for hundreds of years, as it were, European society was profoundly Christian and Christian imagery came into everything that people did and thought and talked. And so the idea of touching the cross uh, as a kind of holy relic, uh, the wooden cross, I don't know, would bring you a blessing or, or good fortune. I don't know. Mm. But if anybody thinks they have a definitive answer, please, purple at somethingelse.com. Susie and Giles, my four-month-old spends a lot of time on his back with rattles and ball toys to play with. Recently, he managed to get a rattle by his feet and was kicking it. I thought, oh, he's manipulating it with his feet. But then I thought, <laughs> manipulate must mean hands, just as manual and the mm. Spanish mano mean hands. So... Is the root of manipulate the same as manual? And if so, is there an equivalent for shifting something with one's feet? Love the show, says kindly Bob in Chicago land. Thank you, Bob, for being in touch. Yes, can you manipulate something with your feet? Yes, it was coined as a deliberate riff on manipulate, and it's pedipulate. Ah. Um, 19th century. So just as gruntles was a kind of back formation from disgruntled, so pedipulate was a back formation from manipulate. But it's a perfectly legitimate word and, and Bob can use it. Excellent. I admire your pedipulation skills. That's very, very good. I, I don't wish to lower the tone, but many years ago, I may have mentioned this before, hmm. about 50 years ago, I was on a committee set up by the late Lord Longford investigating the scourge of pornography in our society. And one of the uh, magazines that we had to look at was a magazine called Amigo. And it was a magazine for foot fetishists. Oh, yeah. And it simply contained uh, pictures of feet with uh, saucy toe-by-toe, step-by-instep accounts of sexy feet. 
and I don't remember meeting the word pediculate. But that is the word if you want to do playful things with your feet. Pedipulate. You pedipulating. Pedipulate. Yes, it's manipulate, but pedipulate. Pedipulate. Yeah. Manipulate, pedipulate. Yes. Very good. Yes. Have you got some interesting words for us this week? A trio of remarkable words? I do. Well, I like them. The first one I particularly like. I don't know if you remember, Giles, me talking about a boffler. And a boffler is a very hearty joke. Um, so one that makes you laugh heartily. And um, this is quite similarly, similar. It's a buckle buster. And a buckle buster means a line in a play or a book or a comedy that makes you laugh out loud so much that your buckle is stretched. I love it. Buckle buster. Um, the buckle on your trousers or belt, I imagine. Um, so that's the first one. The second one, I think I've talked about being sequacious before, but there were sort of events in America that kind of inspired this one really for me. Sequaciousness. Sequaciousness is the slavish following of another even to the most extreme ends. So sequaciousness. That's the second one. I, I'll feed that one without comment. And I like this one because I think 2020 was definitely a withering year. And um, I'm spelling withering here with W-H-I-T-H-E-R-I-N-G. And it looks like this year is going to start off that way for a little bit. And to wither is to move with great force or to buffet like the wind. So it's to be blown this way and that by forces beyond your control. And one synonym for withering was actually wuthering, um, hence wuthering heights. Oh. Wuthering heights set up the house, of course, set up on the hill and being withered or wuthered by the weather, by the wind. So, um, yeah, it's to knock or, or move forcefully, to buff it like the wind. Wonderful. Well, I've got a special poem for us this week. In fact, it's not really a poem. It's the lyrics of a song. Oh. Uh, the songwriter almost I admire above all others was Cole Porter, American composer, lyricist in the first half of the 20th century, famous for writing Kiss Me, Kate. Uh, also mentioned Frank Sinatra, I've Got You Under My Skin, that, that song. But this is a little song that he wrote about friendship. And we've been doing this for 96 episodes, and I could have kept it for our centenary. But I think during lockdown, we all ought to keep in touch with our friends if we can, either by Zoom or by phone, or by even sending them a postcard. And well done, incidentally, the post is still delivering. I'm still getting yeah. letters at my door. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Aren't they good? Yeah. Great people. Anyway, here's this poem about friendship by Cole Porter. If you're ever in a jam, here I am. If you're ever in a mess, SOS. If you ever feel so happy you land in jail, I'm your bail. It's friendship, friendship, just a perfect blendship. When other friendships have been forgot, ours will still be hot. If you're ever up a tree, phone to me. If you're ever down a well, ring my bell. If you ever lost your teeth and you're out to dine, borrow mine. It's friendship, friendship, just a perfect blendship. When other friendships have been forgot, ours will still be great. It's friendship, friendship, just a perfect blendship. When other friendships have been forgot, ours will still be it. Oh, that's gorgeous. Yeah, and that's for you, Susie Dent. 
thank you that is really lovely well on that note thank you for listening and for all of those who generally have been with us since the beginning um, we really do appreciate it and as always please drop us a line purple at something else.com in the meantime something rhymes with purple is a something else production produced by Harriet Wells with additional production from Lawrence Bassett Steve Ackerman Ella McLeod Jay Beale and Giles I didn't mention the word pug onion um, and a pug onion is the foremost point on the midline of the chin it's that bump, bumpy bit on your chin and we can't see this man's pug onion because it's very thickly covered uh, by the most wonderful beard you know who I'm talking about I do our very own buckle buster Gully